Hey, oh, it's 2020. I'm sick. I'm getting over being sick. So don't mind the cold, the cough, and the snivels today on this podcast. Now, let me tell you about this episode of the podcast and who it's brought to you by. It's brought to you by Promises Behavioral Health. Now, Promises, now you might ask, who is Promises? What is this Promises thing? What, what is this? Promises. What are they promising? Let me tell you. Promises is a family of mental health and addiction treatment centers, and they're based out of Nashville, Tennessee. I work with them personally, worked with many of the team. They're ready to help you or your loved ones stay committed and achieve your promise of recovery. Now, there's a lot of treatment centers out there you can reach out to for help. Uh, there's a lot of resources out there, but who do you know you can trust? Uh, how do you know who you can trust? That's where Promises comes in. They're great people. They care. Uh, many of them have family, friends, loved ones that are in recovery themselves, so they get it. They understand. Uh, they also, in addition to that, which is very important itself too, they have highly trained staff members uh, throughout a variety of treatment centers. So there's treatment centers all over the country. To learn more about Promises Treatment Centers and the options that are near you, go to promisesbehavioralhealth.com slash soberguy, or you can call 888-205-1890. That's 888-205-1890. Tell them you heard about them from That Sober Guy podcast. Let me give you that website and number one more time promisesbehavioralhealth.com slash soberguy and check out the webpage. They did a great job putting that thing together. There's actually some pictures uh, of our fam on there because they they uh, flew us out to Arizona um, uh, last year to do a photo shoot, which was awesome. Sent us this beautiful picture of our family representing recovery and just trying to end the stigma and uh, and, and, and be a, a, a good example of what a family is in recovery, that you can recover. There's hope out there. So a big shout out and thank you to them for that. It's hanging on our wall in our house and it's a beautiful picture. Uh, but let me stop blabbing one more time. Promises, you can tell I'm pumped on these guys. They're awesome. Promisesbehavioralhealth.com slash soberguy. Or you can call 888-205-1890 and tell, tell them you heard about us. Uh, tell them you heard about them from that Sober Guy podcast. All right, let me tell you one more, one more uh, great drink, Clean Cause. Clean Cause is an organic sparkling herba mate. It's an energy drink. It's rich in minerals, amino acids, naturally occurring caffeine. Good Lord, I think I need one of these right now. As a matter of fact, my chest, I've been sick for like four days five, six, seven, I don't even know how many days. It's been passing around the family like crazy, all congested, just not feeling good. I think I need to get a clean cause. I'm gonna do that. There's only 30 calories per serving. There's four flavors, peach, raspberry, lemon, lime, and blackberry. They taste great. You get a crash-free energy boost. Here's the best part, one of my favorite parts, probably my favorite part, beyond the drink itself. 50% of all clean cause drink profits support recovery from alcohol and drug addiction. Where are you going to find that at? A good drink and supporting recovery from alcohol and drug addiction. You can get 20% off your first order by going to www.cleancause.com and entering the promo code SOBERGUY. That's cleancause.com. Enter the promo code SOBERGUY and uh, get yourself some clean cause. All right, we uh, I've changed up the format a little bit, starting out with our sponsors in the in, in the very beginning of the show. And then we're going to jump into our guest today, Nikki McCallum. Super pumped to have her on. We had we just had a great conversation. Uh, she's a comedian. You heard a little bit about her background. She wrote a book, Dry Run. Uh, we'll be sure to put those uh, that that link in the show notes. Please support her. Uh, she's doing a great thing out there. She uh, and give her a like on uh, on uh, her 
Instagram. It's at Nikki Mac and Cheese. That's at Nikki Mac and Cheese. You can find her on there and uh, you can show her some love. So big thanks to her for coming on today. Big thanks to you guys for uh, tuning in today, for listening to the show, for being a part of my recovery. I thank you guys. I'm so grateful to be able to do this every day. And uh, I just appreciate you. And man, I'm happy to be sober today. So let's start the show. That Sober Guy podcast contains adult content, merciless truth, and emotional nudity. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Shane Rammer. You're listening to That Sober Guy podcast, and we help people stay sober. Uh, be sure to check us out at thatsoberguy.com, and you can also connect with us on Instagram, at RealThatSoberGuy, and on Twitter, at Shane Rammer. It's good to be with you today. If you're listening to the show for the first time, welcome. Uh, glad you're here, and I've uh, got a great guest lined up today. Uh, my friend Nikki McCollum is here, and uh, Nikki is a New York City-based stand-up comedian, author, and speaker. Uh, she's got a memoir out, Dry Run, and uh, it was out in May 2019. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and in select bookstores. We'll be sure to put a link to that uh, in the show notes. We're going to be talking about the book today. We're going to get to know Nikki a little bit. So, Nikki, uh, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on today. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. I'm doing well. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. So, you're out in New York City? I am. So if you hear sirens in the background, that is why. That's classic. That's like when I'm in San Francisco, it's the same thing. Like there's always sirens and plenty of noise and lots going on. Oh yeah. Never a dull moment. No, no. So, um, so how did you, I know you, you, you've, um, you do a few things. One of, one of your things, obviously you're a comedian, uh, you've been in comedy for how many years? I've been, I've been doing straight stand up for about two years and I have written and performed my own stuff for gosh, maybe the past 15. Wow. Nice. And man, writing, writing is such the art, right? I mean, how, how often and how much uh, work just goes into writing the stuff, let alone having to step back and actually figure out how you're going to deliver it, you know? Oh yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to give our listeners to just a, a, a quick background, um, and, and before, and then I'll let you kind of take the wheel and, and tell us a little bit about your story and why you wrote the book and that, um, you know, Jess and I, uh, and Nikki, my, my wife is the Jess and she comes on the show some, sometimes and we talk oh, the, uh, Jess. the Jess. I know. I don't know how she got that one day. I was just called her the Jess. Um, but, uh, you know, she, she loves to come on and I love having her on to give, the view uh, from the spouse or the loved one of someone who's in recovery, who's struggling with alcoholism, with addiction, um, really feel like that topic doesn't get brought up enough, or at least um, as much as we tend to focus on the people that are in recovery. So your book really focuses around your father and, and him being an alcoholic, uh, having to keep that family secret. Um, and so today we're going to talk a little bit about that, about what it's like to be a loved one of somebody who is struggling, uh, with alcoholism, with addiction, and then how you go on to, uh, be a successful comedian, author, speaker, and then you write this book, um, about, um, about the marathon, uh, the Providence marathon that you ran that kind of went behind that. So, uh, just a brief little setup for our audience. So they kind of know what they're getting into, what they're about to hear. And, um, maybe we can just start. Uh, we can start wherever the hell you want, number one, but if you'd like <laughs> to give a little recap of, of kind of uh, why you wrote the book or a little bit about yourself, how'd you get into comedy? Maybe we can start there. Yeah. So it's funny. It all kind of ties together. I, so I got into stand-up comedy. I, like I said, uh, I wrote for the theater for a long time and I've always been a performer ever since I can remember. Mm. So stand-up was kind of a natural 
fusion of the two things that I love to do the most. Yeah. And about nine years ago or so, I was in an acting class. And the first day of class, the teacher gave us an assignment. And it was write a two-page monologue about something in your life that is the most difficult to talk about, memorize it, and come back and perform it for the class. Mm. And I went home. I wrote this monologue about how I decided to run the Providence Marathon to get my father's attention and some background. My father was a recovering alcoholic, had also run 32 marathons. So after he suffered a near-death relapse, I decided, having never raced in my life, <laughs> to run the Providence Marathon because I didn't know what else to do. Um, and that's, that was my attempt to get his attention and, and communicate with him and save him. Ultimately, it was kind of my Hail Mary pass to him. So I wrote this monologue. I performed it for my acting class. And my teacher said, you should write this into a book. I think this is your memoir. And I was like, oh, oh my God. And so I did it. I did it. It took me eight years, the whole process from beginning to end. And here we are. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, congratulations on the book. Uh, like you. I said, we're going to we'll be sure to put it in the show notes. It's a great book. Um, you really open up about childhood and a lot of experiences along the way with your father, with your mother, with your family. Um, so one of the things I wanted to, to kind of hit on early is the fact of whether you're somebody who's struggling with alcoholism, addiction yourself, or whether it's a family member, a lot of the time we keep these things bottled up inside. It's like this big secret. And I know for me, it was like this huge weight that was just carried on my shoulders for a long time. And the moment that I was able to kind of release that and tell somebody about it, it just gave me the biggest sense of freedom that I had felt in so, so long. Was that something that you experienced by starting to come out and talk about this stuff a little bit? Absolutely. I always joke with my mom. I really took the secrecy to the extreme when I came out with it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wrote an entire book about it. Yeah. Um, my mom was always like, oh, now the whole world's going to know. Yeah. But yeah, it was freeing. And for me, the most powerful thing about it was to, you know, by being vulnerable and by being open, you create a space that's safe for others to be vulnerable and open. And I had so many people reach out to me after the book came out. Um, saying that they too had had a similar experience. A lot of people from my hometown actually reached out saying that they too had had a similar experience. They had no idea I was going through that. They wish we could have connected at the time. So yes, to answer your question, it was very freeing. And I think yeah. the secrecy element is real and it's a huge challenge. So what was it like uh, growing up? Did you know what, did you know what it was? Just not put a, 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 a label on it. Um, what was it like for you growing up with a father who was alcoholic? It was tough. I knew. So my, when my mom told me, I'll never forget. And this is in the book. I was at a friend's house and my dad was supposed to pick me up. We're having a play date. My dad was supposed to pick me up and he didn't show up. And my mom called and had asked uh, my friend's mom if I could sleep over there that night, which was super super rare. I, my yeah. parents letting me have a sleepover on a weeknight. I think I was in the sixth grade or something like that. And uh, she got on the phone and she basically told me, you know, your father's an alcoholic. Please don't tell anyone. Uh, if you tell anyone, I'll be in big trouble. My mom always hates when I relay this part yeah. of the story. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, if you tell anyone, I'll be in big trouble. I need you to stay there tonight. And it came to, you know, find out my dad had been hospitalized. He had to have his stomach pumped. And from there, I went directly into rehab. Um, how old were you again? 
I was, it was actually, it was in the seventh grade, I believe. So I was mm. around 12 years old. Wow. It's a lot for a, it's a lot for a twelve year old. <laughs> yeah, I remember looking alcoholism up in the dictionary because I didn't like you know I think too when you're a kid, you hear these terms like alcoholic. What is that? Mm. And you know for me, I always and this is one of the things that's hard for me about saying you know my dad was an alcoholic because the term just carries such a negative connotation, right? Like you think of I don't know dysfunctional people who are just you know disasters deadbeats but my dad was such a high functioning alcoholic mm. he was an attorney he ran his own law practice he never got violent when he was drunk he would just you know pass out and had a hard time functioning but i think that's one of the reasons his alcoholism went undetected for so long is because he was so high functioning he was still running marathons yeah it's such a it's such a tough thing because it, it's it enables people to justify the behavior when we're still able to take care of business to some extent. Um, you know, we're not, and I've I've said this so many times. We're not the and you hear it a lot, and people probably think it a lot too. You're not, you're not the homeless guy in the doorway with the brown bag, you know, sitting in a pile of urine. Um, you know, who it, that that's the alcoholic for a lot of people. Yeah. In other words, you know, what I mean, totally. that's what people think, and that stigma is so thick around that. And to be honest, man, I've been in recovery, you know, for going on uh, over six years now. And I still even feel that stigma, alcoholic, you know, just to say that even after this, this long, and even after growing up in an alcoholic family and stuff, um, I don't, I don't know that you ever get, uh, you know, no normalized to it, but hopefully by having conversations like this, we, we, uh, you know, we help to bring a little bit of light to that. Now he, so he was an attorney, very high functioning, um, was, was it chaotic at home growing up or was it just pretty normal and just come home and have a couple of drinks? Um, I just kind of want to set the tone because I really do want to convey that message to those out there listening that there's all different levels and types and everyone has their own story and their own situation that they're going through. You know, what, what was yours or your family's? Yeah. So like I said, my dad wasn't a rambunctious or violent drunk he you know would come home from a long day at work we'd have dinner and he you know go through a ton of beer on the couch at night and just mm. be passed out yeah and as a kid i didn't really know there was anything wrong with that right and honestly i think a lot of adults wouldn't necessarily know there's something wrong with that um so i i guess i thought it was normal that was my normal i didn't think anything of it again he would just fall asleep so it's not like there were any visible signs that would be apparent to a 12 year old. Yeah. And my parents did a pretty good job of keeping a lot of that from me. Uh, there were several instances as I got older and when I was in college where I would find out about a relapse that had happened or an incident that had happened after the fact. And I always remember being so upset, like, why didn't you guys tell me? And you know, gosh, it's tough, right? From a parent's perspective too, what do you do? You want to protect your child. Yeah. I'm an only child. So it was just me. Uh, but right. But you also want to be truthful and authentic and not keep secrets. I, I have my own experience, but I also do not fault my parents for wanting to keep this a secret for me. I don't, I don't know that there's a right answer to that component mm. of it. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That's a tough one from a, a parent's point of view. I know, um, you know, obviously just me being pretty open about my own recovery and stuff. Like I get that question sometimes, like, you know, what do you, like our, our daughter's nine and uh, our son is five and 
you know, they're, they're pretty astute to what's going on. You know what I mean? They know that yeah. dad doesn't drink and, and, uh, and obviously, you know, I'm not going into great details about everything with them, but, um, they, they kind of get it, you know? And at the same time, it's like, how much do you expose or tell them about to where, you know, you still want, you don't want them to lose their innocence. You want them to be a kid, you know, at the same yeah. time. But, and I think too, I mean, we, we kind of live, it's, it's, it's different today than when we were kids, you know, it's so different. Um, that was probably something, and let me ask you this. I mean, do you think that was a part of it maybe with your mom and with your family that that stigma, obviously the stigma still exists, but I feel like even, you know, when, when we were younger, um, it was even more of a stigma, I think, back back then where you just didn't really talk about that. The anonymity aspect of it was really, really, really deep then. Yeah, and I grew up in the Boston area, which mm. I think is um, those lace curtains are particularly <laughs> yeah. prominent. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when I when I talked to my mom about it today or, you know, whenever we had the conversation, she says that the reason she didn't want me to tell anyone was because she was afraid that other kids at school would make fun of me. Mm. And wow. they probably would have. You know, it's like I just don't. On one hand, I get really angry sometimes. And on the other hand, I'm like, you know what? If I were in her shoes, I might have done the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, one of the things I noticed too, and I kind of switch gears here real fast, is that um, uh, your resident, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, career coach and speaker in residence at New York City's Coalition for the Homeless. Yeah. So it said you mentor mentor women that are looking to re-enter the workforce. I thought that was really, really awesome that you do that. Can you explain a little bit about what that is and how you're able to uh, to help other other people do that? Yeah. So the Coalition for the Homeless has a, in New York City has a program called First Step. And it is, I believe, around a 12-week program that is completely free and it helps women, you know, who are of lower income, uh, sometimes homeless who, you know, helps them get back on their feet. It yeah. trains them up on skills you might need in an office like Excel or Salesforce. It coaches them on how to, you know, interview for a job and things like that. So I have been volunteering there for about a year and a half now. I teach, I teach two classes. I teach networking your way to the top and I teach the importance of showing up. And mm. I also mentor, I have a new mentee every, I guess you'd call it a semester and that's actually been super cool because a lot of those women have dealt with alcoholism or yeah. you know have significant others or family members who are struggling with alcoholism so i have been able to connect with some individuals in a pretty powerful way yeah that's awesome there as well i i i love that uh, just show up that's like my motto i say yeah. talk about that all the time like i don't have to have all the answers i don't need to set these lavish expectations I don't need to do any of that. All I need to do is just show up and I'll let totally. God, God handle the rest, you know, because totally. the moment I try to start, the moment I try, you know, to start doing all that and control it and like have my hand in it, like it usually never works out the way that it, <laughs> the way that it's, it's so taught, true. You know? Yeah. It's so, and I think sometimes we don't show up out of fear of failure or out of shame or embarrassment and you're just missing out on opportunities and, and yourself really. Yeah. Totally. Totally. That fear thing is a, is a big one. Um, I'm really starting to recognize that the older I get that, uh, you know, that most of my insecurities or, 
whatever emotion it is where it's usually something that leans towards the negative side, it always comes back to me being scared of something. What am I fearful of? You know, and it's like as soon as I can start kind of trying to pinpoint what that is and dig a little bit inside of it, it makes it a little bit easier to start dealing with it. Yeah. Life's tough. <laughs> totally. It's yeah. funny that acting class, the second assignment I had to do in that class was write a two page monologue about what holds me back. Mm. What did that look like? <laughs> you don't want to know. Do you have another seven hours? <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? You could just dig in right there. I know. Oh. It's usually us though, right? I mean, for me, yeah. like I'm my own worst enemy. That's what usually holds me back. My own thoughts, totally. my own uh, predictions about people, places, things, whatever the heck it is. It's like, man, I will psych myself out of mowing the lawn if I could. You know what I mean? I'll oh, find totally. some way that it's going to you know, get crazy. But um, Totally. So I know one of the other things we, we were going to kind of chat about too was was uh was staying anonymous about this kind of stuff obviously out of respect to the rooms of 12 step um you know whatever program it is uh, people's personal you know stories that we hear in the rooms and all that stuff like there's there's a reason for anonymity there's a reason um that people you know choose to take to to uh to honor that it's part of the traditions all that at the same time um obviously i came out about my own recovery pretty early on and started a podcast with it um you know you, you wrote a book dry run you know about your experiences with your father um what are your thoughts on on staying anonymous uh and you know i mean what, what's kind of your take on that yeah so as you said i absolutely understand the place for 12-step programs in the, whenever I have to say the word anonymity, anonymity, I can never say it. And I like psych myself out right before I have to say it. I, um, I understand the reason for that. And I absolutely understand the importance of having a safe space where people can go and feel free to express themselves authentically. I think that one of the challenges with that is that it contributes to the shame that is linked with addiction. And the more shame that exists, the more people are afraid to express themselves, the more they become isolated. So for me, that concept in many ways can also contribute to the stigma. And as we were chatting about before, one of the greatest challenges I've had, um, my publisher and I have had in marketing dry run is getting it in front of the right people because the people who could really benefit from this the most, you know, folks who are part of perhaps Al-Anon or AA, they're all anonymous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Yeah. It's definitely uh, um, a fellowship, you know, a community. And yeah. I think that, I think that honoring those traditions is, uh, is number one, you know, for sure. But at the same totally. time, it's like who, you know, if you, if you have a, a personal story, a personal, um, you know, thought that you'd like to, to share. There's nothing wrong with that at the same time too. And I think that's, I think it just depends on the person. Every, everybody's a little different. Everyone um, thinks about things a little bit differently. So totally. kind of take it like that. Totally. And I think one of the things that's so cool about you and your podcast, Shane, and so cool about just kind of being open is you're making it okay for mm -hmm. other people. Like it's okay. If you have an addiction, that's not, you're not weird. You're not a freak. Mm -hmm. You're, you, you know what I mean? It's, it's okay. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a struggle and that's your struggle. I appreciate you saying that too, because that was really the big, the big, you know, thought when I 
started this was number one, I need to stay sober. So that was like first and foremost. And like <laughs> Way to hold yourself accountable. <laughs> exactly. I'll just put a podcast out and blast all my crap I'm going through, you know. And it was really just kind of this weird, innocent idea. And at the same time, yeah, it was about that. Like, well, you know, I just, I want people to know that they're not weird. They're not, you know, alone. I think that's a big thing. And you mentioned that isolation, right? Yeah. I heard in a meeting the other day, something really great and it was so simple and it just hit it hit home and this guy this guy was uh was sharing and he said alcohol is patient and i went man that's so yeah. it's so like it just makes so much sense because you, you can manage it and you can manage it and you can manage it until you can't manage it and it's some for some people you know it's it's weeks it's months for some it's years for some it's decades before it finally gets a hold of them but yeah. eventually you know, eventually, if you have what we have, you know what I mean, what I have in, you know, in me as far as these these tendencies, this uh, this alcoholic uh, way of thinking, um, it catches up to you eventually, you know, and man, I just I feel for for you, uh, for your family and for all the other families out there who have gone through these peaks and valleys, the ups and downs of that. You watch how it progresses and like your father had just battled it for years. Um, yeah. And it sounded like too that, you know, you, you did end up coming to a general understanding with him too. I mean, what, what advice can you give others out there who may be struggling with that? Maybe that's a secret still, or maybe they don't know how to talk to their loved one. You know, what, what, what do you tell other people when you have conversations with them or what do you share yeah. with them? You know, I think for me, and it took me a really long time <laughs> to get there. Um, I, as someone who doesn't personally struggle with addiction yet, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I couldn't wrap my mind around it. And every time my dad would relapse, I'd be like, I don't, I don't get it. Mm. But my dad was also an unbelievable human being. Um, he did pass about coming actually his year, the year anniversary of his death was this Monday. So exact, almost exactly a year ago. Wow. Um, he was five years sober when he passed and he's one of the most tenacious people I've ever met. And I think for me, you know, both of my parents raised me to believe that life isn't about your failures. It's not about the times you get knocked down. It's about how you deal with them and how you get back up. Yeah, good. And I look at my father's trajectory and was he in and out of rehab a million times? Yes. Did he relapse a million times? Yes. But he kept getting back on the horse. He kept getting back up. And so for me, I mean, he was, a, he's a role model for me. Yeah. Um, I think it's that tenacity that I admire um, and that tenacity that I've can see that I've inherited from him. And that is what really made me come to peace with it. That perspective. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. How much of that tenacity did you have to use to finish this damn marathon? <laughs> so much, Shane. It was yeah. awful. I don't recommend. No, it's. I've run two now. I'm actually. I'm. Nice. I'm running um, the Chicago Marathon in the fall, but it's every time I. I do. It's just. It's awful. It's so. It's not fun at all. Do you do you really find that you have to take your mind to a place of um, away? You know, and I, and I would imagine too. So let me kind of double up on the question or the thought here, taking your mind away. But at the same time, I would assume or guess that there is a deep passion to kind of serve your father and, and honor him in doing these marathons. So I'm sure that's yeah. some, some, uh, some of the motivation as well. Totally. Yeah. Um, you do. I mean, it's, it is an out of body experience for sure. And again, like marathoning 
pulls on that same thing. I think that folks who struggle with addiction pull on to stay or get sober. It's like, you yeah. just have to keep going. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I, so I picked the Providence marathon to run cause I was told it was the flattest course <laughs> in new England. Smart. Um, Smart. It was not, I can tell you it was not flat. Uh, I, and there are things like people don't tell you before you run a marathon. Like I, had chafing happening. Like my underarms were bleeding. Oh, my man. scalp was sunburned. Like I was like, who thinks this is like, why didn't anyone tell me these things? And who thinks this is fun? <laughs> that sounds pretty brutal. I yeah, mean, it was just, awful. Yeah. But, but getting, you know, my dad always said, um, and not to outshine my mom, my mom has also run six or five, five or six marathons. I, I, she always gets upset when I don't credit her <laughs> when I talk about this. <laughs> Gotta give moms is, I mean, credit, you know, give moms yeah, credit. <laughs> give, give credit where credit's yeah. due. Um, but my dad always said, you know, crossing the finish line of a marathon will make you feel unstoppable. And it made him feel unstoppable. Mm. And so I think on some level, I wanted to feel unstoppable. Yeah, that's good. So your next one is in Chicago. Yeah. When yeah. Is, is that, is that this, that's this year I'm assuming. Yeah. 20, uh, October, 2020. Nice. So what is a, uh, what does your training regimen look like for something like that? I'm just curious. Yeah. So my training regimen for my first marathon was to very slowly run 20 miles every Saturday and then order an entire cheese pizza and a roll of pizza. Um, you got to carb up and get ready for the next week. Oh, right? I carb loaded for like two years. Oh, um, my training regimen for New York, I took New York a little bit more seriously just because I had been, I so since the Providence Marathon, I started running um, and racing. I did a bunch of half marathons in between. I kind of got bitten by the bug. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you'll just kind of, I just started, I don't really follow a specific plan. I kind of make my own, Mm. um, you know, that just involves running maybe five or six days a week and you got shorter runs and you got longer runs and sometimes you go for speed. Sometimes you go for distance, but just really um, staying active. Yeah. And eat a lot, (laughs) eat a lot and run a lot pretty much. Yeah. Do you think, uh, do you think the marathons for your dad was a way um, for him to kind of let out some of those, some, I'll just call them demons. And that's kind of, per, you know, um, the only way I can kind of recognize them in my own stuff, but it's just like the, those, and the demons may be anything from anxiety to perfection to, um, to whatever it is that's causing me to have those kind of thoughts or those obsession to drink. Do you think that the marathons and staying active, uh, helped him with that? I'm sure it must have. Yeah. It must have. What's interesting and what I could never quite, it's like I could never quite figure it out was my, so my dad didn't start having an alcohol problem until, gosh, it was about 15 years into he and my mom's marriage. So mm-hmm. he was probably in his 40s um, before this was addressed as like, hey, this is an issue. I need to go yeah. to AA. I need to get help. Um so it can develop later in life. So whether that was in him and he was channeling it into racing, yeah, I'm sure mm. it helped with his demons. Um, and it was always so interesting to me. Again, you have to have so much grit to finish a marathon. And he would always say that, you know, it made him feel unstoppable, yet he couldn't stop drinking, right? Yeah. It kind of works both ways. It was always an interesting concept. It's like, you can't, what came first, the chicken or the egg type of thing. (laughs) Yeah, that's fun. 
Well, that and see, and that's that's kind of you mentioned him getting into his forties before you know it was kind of recognized as an issue. My guess is it was probably an issue long before that. Sure. But that that's that's kind of what I was getting at earlier with the patience thing. The alcohol is patient. Like you, it just it just slowly will creep into into. Um, your everyday life and your activities where there's just, there's this normalcy bias behind it. And then we we can't really talk about it. We don't approach it. It's just what we do. And then all of a sudden, you know, you find yourself your forties, your fifties, your sixties, whatever it is. And all of a sudden it's just completely got a hold of you. And then now it's like, well, how do we deal with this stuff? There's, you know, there's denial involved. I mean, all that stuff Uh. that, that that's the big, was there a lot of denial that you found in, um, you know, whether it was with yourself or your mom or, or your dad, I mean, that's always a big thing too. And I get that question a lot. Well, how do I, how do I break down someone's now? Well, first of all, you don't, because that's not going to be able to do that with somebody. But um, right. I mean, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Denial is a tough one. I can tell you it was super prominent in my experience. Mm. Um, I don't, in terms of me personally having denial, I felt like I was pretty aware of the scenario and was frustrated at my parents' seeming denial. Um, You know, my mom definitely, who was probably in the toughest position of all of us, um, I think experienced a lot of denial. I'll never forget there was a, and this is also in the book, uh, my dad was driving, we have a place on, my family has a place in Cape Cod, and he was driving from Boston to Cape Cod, and he lost his phone, his iPhone. And you know, we, it was such an ordeal to find the phone. And he was saying maybe he lost it. He pulled over at a rest stop and maybe, you know, he left the window down and maybe someone stole it. It just seemed like such a weird story to me. And we wound up someone from the restaurant or whoever found the phone called and they said we could come pick it up at this establishment off the height. It was like a Burger King or pizza. It was some, it was something. And I Googled it in that lot, the parking lot. Mm. I saw online that there was a bar. Like that's immediately where my head went because right, right when you, every time my dad relapsed, he would lose things. Like there would be something that would be off. Yeah. And I remember having a conversation with my mom and like, how has it not occurred to you that dad's drinking again? Um, and listen, again, I'm in, I'm in no place to judge. I would imagine having a spouse struggling with addiction. It's like, you want to believe it gets better. You don't right every time you think there's a relapse, you want to find 10 other reasons. It may not be a relapse. You're always trying to, reach for that silver lining and, and hope because yeah. that's really what gets you through. I think being the spouse or a family member of someone dealing with addiction is so hard because you really have no control. Yeah. You really have no control over what they do. Yeah, it's tough. And and a lot of the time not only is there not a control aspect there, you know, because you, you love the person, but you can't control what they're doing. Um, yeah. A lot of the time it, it kind of get sent to the back almost in a sense, you know what I mean? And, and, and that self care for that person, for the spouse tends to really decline. You see that a lot and you hear that a lot too. Um, did your mom struggle with that at all? Just like where it's almost putting herself last, you know, to protect your father or protect his drinking or anything like that. For sure. For sure. I think a lot of her energy went into making sure he was staying sober went into caring for him. Um, You know, my dad towards the end of his life had a lot of health issues that one could argue were, listen, I'm sure 32 marathons didn't help, but (laughs) 
One could argue that um, the alcoholism played a large part. He had really bad neuropathy. That was a direct result of the alcohol. Um, so for the past several years of his life, he had a hard time walking. Um, he, so, so my mom was very much his caretaker. Yeah. And I think that just, yeah, so much of her energy went into not only physically caring for him, but also, you know, things in her life would be good if he was sober, right? Yeah. So it's in her best interest for him to be sober. So I think so much of her energy went into just making sure he was sober. Yeah, that's tough. It's really tough. Um, you know, I just thought of something when you mentioned Boston again, too. I have a couple of friends, uh, Megan and Bobby, their uh, father and daughter, they're out of the Boston area. They have a podcast called The Addictionary Podcast. And uh, yeah, they're and Ma Megan, they're both great um, in a long history in the Boston area. Uh, Megan struggled with addiction herself and then went on. I think she's done. She's a, she got her master's in uh, psychology and she's a therapist now. Uh, so I'll definitely hook you up with those two too. They would, I mean, th that'd be a great conversation. I'd love to hear that. Of, of yeah, that'd be awesome. So I'll do that too. Um, but anything, I mean, what, what else? I'm trying to think of what else. I mean, I just really wanted to, to number one, um, you know, just say thank you for coming on the podcast for, for sharing your story. I know it, takes a lot to, uh, you know, to kind of, uh, to share some of our deep thoughts, experiences, uh, things that we've been through and stuff. And I think that, I think that you're really helping to provide a voice for those out there who, who have somebody who they're struggling. I mean, I can't tell you, Nikki, how many times lately, I don't know if it's just the end of the year thing. Um, we've had some, my, uh, Jess and I have had some, some close experience with some people that we love going through it. Um, but not only that, the emails and the messages that I've been getting lately from, from spouses out there uh, or from loved ones who are really struggling and they don't know how to help their loved one. Um, yeah. You know, and it's, it's heartbreaking. It really is. And it's tough because, you know, you know, a lot of the time that there's nothing indirectly you can do for someone. I can have every resource and all the money in the world and everything to do for somebody. But if they don't want the help, you know, then, then, then they're, they're probably not going to get it. They have to be ready for that. And I think that's one of the hardest yeah. things, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Asking for help is, or, or being in a place where you realize that you need help, I think mm -hmm. is so challenging. Um, but you know, there's, there's plenty of resources out there, right? I mean, there's podcasts, there's books, there's, uh, there's 12 step, there's Al-Anon. That's a big one. Do you, do you do any work with Al-Anon by the way? I thought, I thought I read that you did somewhere or so oh, I don't do any work with Al-Anon, but my mom is heavily involved okay. in Al-Anon. And she actually started, um, this was kind of her, her takeaway. She, she started uh, several groups in Massachusetts at high schools called Alateen, where oh. she would go and provide students um, with a safe space to talk about their challenges in this area. Um, that's huge. Which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty, she's, she's a rock star. <laughs> that is, that's awesome. I mean, shoot, that's a whole nother aspect of it, right? Growing up. I mean, I know for me as a teenager, that was a tough time in my life, you know, growing up. Yeah. A lot of kids going through that. Dysfunctional families, alcohol plays a heavy part. Like what, you know, what do you do? So uh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, anything that you can leave the listeners with today, uh, where, like I said, I'll put the, uh, the link in the show notes for the book, of course. Um, what's any, any final thoughts or words of encouragement, advice for someone out there, a family out there who's struggling uh, with alcoholism, with addiction? Yeah. I think the biggest thing to remember is you're not alone. Mm. You're not alone. And I think that 
is really what motivates me. It's what motivated me to write dry run and what motivated me to, or motivates me to want to share it. Um, if there's anything I can do during my time on this earth to make someone else feel less alone, then that's a win. Yeah, it's good. And you're at Nikki Mac and cheese. I love that Nikki on Mac Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> and wait, my real, favorite food. real quick too. I didn't, uh, is that your favorite food? But that's, that's, oh, my, yeah. oh yeah. We, yeah. That we get a lot of that around here with the kids too. Just give me some Mac and cheese, but they want craft, yeah. man. I told them it's all about the Velveeta. They don't want to listen to oh. me. I don't know. What I'm you, an Annie's girl. Oh, Annie, Annie's is good too. Annie's a little bit yeah. healthier, right? Eh. allegedly <laughs> <Debatable>. allegedly <laughs> that's very that's definitely highly debatable we'll see mm. um any uh any upcoming shows or anything you want to plug or uh anything going on in your area um well i mean i've so i'm new york city based i got a couple comedy shows coming up i actually produce a show called you're so brave that happens monthly with my partner and co-host by the name of Sarah Cooper, a dear friend of mine. And nice. uh, we've got that coming up this Wednesday. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, Good but it's, stuff. it's the fourth Wednesday of every month at the Lantern Comedy Club in New York City. Check the book out. Once again, be in the show notes. Dry Run, Nikki McCallum. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I greatly appreciate you, the work you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was so much fun. So keep my head on straight. I've been trying. Keep my head on straight I've been trying To keep my head on straight You still say that I don't know Anything about you Oh, I don't know anything about you But I know what you do in the back room Say that I don't know anything about